Hello. These days, mental health is at the forefront of all of our minds. But what we are also seeing is that it's those very people who help us get better when we're sick who are struggling with the worst effects of this particular crisis. In this series, we'll be exploring how mental illness is rising amongst healthcare professionals faster than any other sector of society. And we'll also look at ways that brilliant people around the world are finding new ways to help those who help us. Welcome to the Healing the Healers podcast series with me, Dr. Tapas Mukherjee, Medical Director at the Havas Links Group. And hello from me, Dr. Freddie Lewis, Senior Medical Advisor at Havas Links Group, as we discuss what we in the wider healthcare community can do about it. With special guests from around the UK, mental health experts, and great minds from across the Havas network itself, this series promises to be insightful, emotional at times, and above all else, a timely reminder that mental health challenges can affect any one of us. This podcast will contain references to suicide and mental illness, which may distress you or stir up some unwelcome emotions or memories of mental health issues. So listener discretion is advised if you believe you may be affected. Without further ado, let's jump into this week's episode. Welcome, everyone. Really excited today to be talking to a fantastic guest, um, Amandip Sidhu joins us from Doctors in Distress, um, an amazing organisation that we'll be um, discussing, exploring now. Um, Amandip, welcome. Um, we're so grateful to you for coming um, and providing your perspectives and telling us all about your amazing organisation. Um, uh, before we dive into the great work of Doctors in Distress, um, it'd be great to just get a little flavour of about you and uh, where you're based Um uh, just so our listeners get a feel for who you are. Sure, thanks. Um, so, as, as you said, my name's Amadip Sidhu and I'm from the charity Doctors in Distress and uh, I'm the founder and one of the trustees. Um, we're pretty much a virtual organisation, but um, I think our registered address is my house here in Watford. Um, so all the admin and the letters come here, but um, the team is um, spaced out very much around the UK. So uh, so very, very virtual in nature. Yeah, and looking on your website and through the discussions we've had today, it sounds like the organisation has really grown, exploded in the last um, few years. So I'm not underestimating how much correspondence and how much work you must have to put into this to uh, to keep it all going. Indeed, yeah. It's been um, <clears throat> it's been a bit of a journey, actually. And, and I should say, maybe at the outset, this isn't really my day job. I, I say jokingly to people, this is kind of a hobby outside of work. But um there's a an excellent and fantastic executive team that that manage things. But um, I um I really started this journey about four years ago, four and a half years ago. Um, and I'm not. I should also say I'm not a doctor myself, um, but I do work in the healthcare industry. And I'm trying to think back, actually, <clears throat> twenty <clears throat> something years ago, I won't give the exact number, but uh, I qualified as a pharmacist. Uh, but I left patient facing work um, about fifteen odd years ago. So I work in the healthcare and pharmaceutical services industry. But I, I took an interest in um, burnouts and particularly in um, the healthcare system and doctors and healthcare workers uh, following the loss of my older brother. Um, he was a doctor. He was actually a consultant cardiologist um, and he was older than me. And um, very, very sort of short but sad story is that I think like many doctors, he he worked under immense work pressure and um I think, as he simply put, um, you know, um, when I last saw him was he just felt there wasn't enough resources to treat the number of patients, but he sort of felt that he had to carry a, um, 
a pressured and resource system. So things really came to a head for him in November 2018. Um, and um, up until that point, I think everything sort of seemed very, very normal. Uh, I think he had a few sleep issues and a few, you know, things that sort of I thought that old age was sort of creeping up to him, creeping up on him. He was kind of his sort of mid to late 40s. And that's where I am now. So I can understand how he feels that sometimes you just need a the odd afternoon nap uh, which is actually a wonderful thing I would advocate but that we'll leave that for another podcast <laughs> but um things really as I said sort of came to a head when um he was actually signed off sick from work and it turned out he was probably suffering from a very very high state of anxiety and probably a depre- a very very deep and chronic depression that he hid for a number of years and the primary root cause of all of that was he was extremely burnt out and um, I remember sort of meeting him um, very soon after he was signed off sick. And, you know, he was verbalizing a lot of things about the health system and said, look, I, it's just, you know, really, really hard to work in. And I can't I can't do this any longer. He's actually turned out he was doing the job of two consultants because another one in his team was off sick. So he picked up a completely separate job role to his own and, and sort of tried to do both, but obviously couldn't sustain that as anyone would humanely expect. And so, um, you know, uh, before I saw him, before he passed away, he, um, you know, he was a, a very, very different character to the one that I grew up with. You know, I grew up with someone who was a, a high academic achiever and, you know, that sort of sort of role model that, uh, you know, a lot of people, um, particularly listening to this podcast, would really aspire to be and, and think this is someone who's got everything that, you know, I'd ever want in life. But um, ultimately, the, the job and the system he worked in um, – was very, very detrimental to his health. And very, very sadly, he took his own life in quite a dramatic way. He ended his life at Beachy Head, um, which just came as a complete shock, um, especially for someone who hadn't been up a ladder in his life or anything like that. But he he very much identified with nature. And I think when I speak to people or spoken to people who've been in a similar place, and I guess I include myself in that, um, which is um, happened to me a few months before that. I didn't obviously reach a very tragic outcome, but I realized now how close I probably was because I went through my own burnout. I could totally empathize how he felt. And so <clears throat> very soon after he passed away, I I took a real interest in doctors' health uh, and particularly healthcare workers' mental health. And that's when I formed the charity Doctors in Distress. And at the time, I remember thinking in sort of the early or mid part of 2019, well, what's it going to do? What, what, I don't sort of really, you know, have a sort of a structured plan beyond wanting to tell my brother's story. Um, and quite frankly, and I know this could be triggering to a lot of people, but I, I often sit and reflect in the way that he died and particularly where, because BG Head is quite a fair, fair distance from his house. Um, I think he wanted to send a very clear message um, to the world to say, look, this is something that's happened to me. And this is something that can happen to any one of you. And so I felt compelled and it was kind of my kind of my duty, as it were, to sort of make sure that that message was was heard. So I indeed, I started the charity up to really try and tell the story of what happened to him uh, with the hope of trying to prevent future tragedy tragedies to others. And so in the early days, I did a lot of speaking, a lot of talking about the story, and it seemed to resonate with a lot of doctors and other healthcare workers. And uh, that's kind of where the story started of, of doctors in distress. Goodness. Well, Amanda, thank you so much for sharing that story. I mean, I cannot imagine how hard, how challenging, how awful that must have been for you and your family to go through. I think uh, 
just very grateful for you for sharing that because um, it can't be easy to relive that story again and again and again. But I think I am so grateful for you telling it as well because I think it's important for all of our listeners and for the wider world to realise that when we talk around the numbers, whether it's a Medscape survey or a preference survey or numbers of people leaving the specialty, that those are proxies for um, a significant number of people for whom it directly can end in the most tragic of circumstances for both them as an individual and the family. So um, it's a really important reminder at the rawest level as to why this is such an important topic. Um, and so we are really, really grateful for you coming to tell us about how you have been able to build an amazing organisation which which aims to do something around about that, right? And I think... Um, yeah. Yeah, maybe, maybe it's best to shift now and think about sort of uh, so how doctors in distress has how it how it works, what it does, how does it aim to kind of combat this this problem. So, in terms of our mission, as it were, we we, we exist very much in the prevention space, and we want to protect the mental health of actually not just doctors but all healthcare workers, and with the, obviously the ultimate aim of suicide prevention. Now, <clears throat> I actually remember one of the most important pieces of advice I was given in the early days was to think about, as I built this charity and, and the work it does, to really focus on or to try and remember what things would have avoided my brother's death. And I could sort of probably put that into three buckets. So the first is around stigma. Now, one of the reasons my brother passed away was that he wasn't able to reach out within his work environment or any other environment about how much difficulty he was facing. And that's because there's a lot of stigma both within the health professions and also the health systems because, and again, as, as, as I sort of put my Joe Public hat on, you know, I, I often sort of sometimes sit and reflect that, you know, we all look at doctors and healthcare workers as being able to give us care and look after our own health. And so you naturally assume they can do the same. But I think, you know, it's quite notorious. And I know, you know, with your medical background, you'll resonate with this, that doctors are probably the worst people to look after their own physical health, let alone their mental health. And I think there's been a lot of ingrained um, behaviors within the medical profession that looks very negatively upon colleagues and peers that are going through difficulties, uh, particularly suffering from adverse mental health. So number one, we try and break down stigma and podcasts like these help break that down because we believe the more you talk about it, the more it encourages people to come forward. But we also advocate for people to be role models and talk about their own difficulties and stories that they've gone through because it encourages fellow peers to then reveal and share and really not feel isolated because I think my brother probably felt extremely isolated and lonely. Um, and again, in a, in a very pressured health system. And this was, let's not forget, this is 2018. And as we sit here talking today we're here in 2023 it's you know in some ways it's 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 worse it's it's you know certainly not better than it was years ago so you know working in a very very flat out sort of hamster wheel environment you don't get time to talk about your your difficulty so so that's one of the first things we try and tackle the second is around trying to encourage positive cultures and behaviors so it's a little bit linked to like stigma. So again, we encourage people within the professions to act as role models, to act compassionately uh, to their peers. And indeed, actually, 
for people that they lead or work with in allied health professions because you know judging colleagues and you know having that sort of ingrained prejudice doesn't encourage a healthy working environment that ultimately can affect people and so not just within the health systems but also as i said within the professions as well is to encourage people to adopt cultures and behaviors and to evolve and 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 i mean this with the greatest respect because i have the utmost respect for the medical professions but i often challenge uh, certain disciplines within the professions and surgeons being actually a really really good one in that you know the surgical techniques and thoughts and you know knowledge evolves over time over you know the profession's been in existence for hundreds of years and started off from witchcraft to leeches and now laser technology and all that kind of stuff so whilst the instruments of medicine have evolved i i often i often challenge and say well sometimes why have your cultures and behaviors not kept up with that rate of change you still look down on colleagues that are real you're you know there is still endemic racism and misogyny within the health system and indeed the profession so i often like to challenge and say well let's evolve those cultures and behaviors but i think fundamentally the third bucket that i wanted to mention is is around the value of good strong and compassionate leadership and that's something that my brother and others particularly lack within the health system and i think sometimes doctors and other healthcare workers are a little bit guilty of allowing that to happen because they want to retain their autonomy their independence and don't want to be um sort of cajoled into you know giving this um the care that they want to but at the end of the day i think we're all human beings and we all need to be led and cared for uh, in the workplace in some way whether that's through a direct leader or through peers etc so that's really the three buckets that we try and sort of work in so we do podcasts we do lots of media stuff we do lots of white papers etc and we encourage people to act as role models but one of the things that we do as well is really try and bring doctors together um in a very very safe space in a very very independent area so it's outside of the NHS and i remember when i was going through my burnouts and particularly doctors resonate with this is that even looking at your employer's logo like at the NHS it automatically triggers you you think oh or you see another email coming you think I, i just can't do this so so we we try and take doctors outside of their work environment where they can talk about the emotional impact of their work indeed in a very very safe space one that's confidential so there's no links back to any employers or indeed any regulators or people like the GMC so it's completely independent and people can just come together and just talk about their work and what we try and do for example in our support groups is bring doctors together that have a sort of a common interest um where they can just use that as a, as a as a sort of a facilitator for conversation so um one of the first ever support groups that we ran was actually doctors with long covid and this was crikey this would have been April 2020 so just as the pandemic started to hit the UK um even doctors with long covid um even sorry even before long covid was even kind of acknowledged even doctors with long covid were suffering from these symptoms so and some of the stories i heard were quite quite shocking really so you know th- there were colleagues and peers that were, have been off work for two or three months at a time um and is a mixture of secondary care primary care um doctors and there was actually one particular story it was a it was a gp actually who'd been off i think for about 3 or 4 months and uh, she was a salary gp and um and she was actually sacked by her colleagues and because they said well you got long covid we don't you know sort of acknowledge that and effectively the message they gave her was you know good enough you're not good enough for us anymore 
And I thought that this is really quite a startling thing to happen in the profession of, you know, something like that, because again, and I have the utmost respect, but if I was a patient and my doctor told me that I wouldn't be overly impressed. Um, and I think one of the things that I've learned and we try and advocate is that doctors can be patients too. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, cause I know you within medical school and sort of the early years of foundation training, it, it's taught that you should not be a patient. You've got to be the caregiver. But I, I, I think that line's a little bit more blurred now. So, so that's kind of one of the things that we do. We also do creative writing groups and expressive um, things, which hands up, I've always been a little bit skeptical of, but I've seen the actual positive impact. And having gone through it myself, I realize that just, just bringing, bringing people together and taking their mind off work, but being in like-minded company um, and getting some peer support is really, really impactful. And I'm very, very glad to say, I think to date we've helped over two and a half thousand healthcare professionals, most of which are doctors that have actually said, had it not been for your work, we would have not been here or we would have done something else. And several have actually written to me very privately and said, you know, had, had it not been for doctors in distress, I probably would have ended up like your brother. So I like to think that we've actually made a very, very positive impact. And and yeah, the charity really continues to try and provide some immediate solutions and support packages to doctors where we can. Uh, but also we're, we're interested in more around the medium to long term issues around. And, and I, I sit and reflect how best to phrase this, but there isn't any other better way, but how to make probably the NHS a more enjoyable place to work in. And I think things like the recent pandemic have put a spotlight on how stressful it can be. Um, and that spotlight has now diminished. But the reality is still the same. We hear a lot of feedback from doctors and other healthcare workers that say, probably now more than ever, even probably more so during the pandemic, it, it's a really hard place to work. And I think at the root of that is, is simply the lack of resources to treat the number of patients. And resources means beds, tools, but importantly, qualified people and retaining people. So, you know, it, it's really sort of the short and medium and long-term things that Doctors in Distress really, really works hard towards. I mean, that's amazing. I think uh, it's incredible, I think, the amount of people that you've been able to help and just um, the sheer value that you've brought for them. I think there's a couple of things I just wanted to draw upon as you were talking there that really resonated with me. Um, and I think the first thing was around moral injury. So we've talked a bit about this in a in a previous episode, and I think it comes up again later. But I think for me, that's a really critical point at the centre of this. Um, and what happens when you, on a sustained um, profile, you end up disrupting that sense of moral justice and um, how that contributes to burnout, especially when your workforce have such a high degree, hold themselves to such high account in terms of standards and what they mm. expect. Um, and I think for me, it's so important. And, you know, we've seen from various crises in quality um, that have occurred throughout the history of health services. I mean, in particular, I'm thinking about, say, the mid-staffs um, um, crisis um which for those of you not in the uk was around um a hospital system that essentially was found to be operating at very very low quality and with a sort of a degree of um disregard for patient um 
safety and also just level of care that was found to be absolutely awful. And it was found that essentially the workforce had been pushed to such a degree that they were violating standards that when they went over that threshold, they went big to the extent that they didn't have the capacity to even care anymore. And they started Mm. to treat their work and their patients almost like sausages in a sausage factory. And of course, clearly that is not desirable. Um, And off the back of that, a whole load of changes were made in the UK health system. Um, But I particularly was interested by what you were saying about compassionate leadership, because we also have a later podcast coming up with the King's Fund, um, and in particular Michael West, who was part of building this framework around compassionate leadership within the NHS, um, and which has now been adopted globally um, and has been uh, picked up by the Institute for Health Improvement over in the US. Um, And for me, that is so important around doctors understanding that culture and what dictates culture and how things what how things happen around here and what around here looks like is the actions of individuals and that is true for us in our own jobs as well you know we define by our actions what the culture is so we are part of the solution um, as well in terms of being positive role models about enacting the kind of cultures values that we wish to see others um, um, display as well um, I was also particularly interested when you said about the NHS emblem being triggering and it's it's so true with me it goes to the extent where even the colour for mm. me is can be triggering in the sense that it transports me immediately back to what it feels like and we talk about that on an earlier podcast in fact around a lot of this burnout is a visceral experience for people it's not rational it is literally a feeling that they experience um at work and when they think about work um really really interesting um and awful for those people who are in there um so just going now into the work of doctors in distress and i i was really i loved seeing around your support groups i think that's something that really resonates with me having benefited from schwartz rounds or balance groups i don't know whether you're familiar with those amanda yeah yes indeed yeah so it's yeah it's uh, and i won't profess to be an expert by any means um but it's it's i think it goes back to what i said earlier it's around taking time to reflect outside of the in quotes normal working day or the normal working hour Um, because I know (laughs) many folk going through burnout literally take it hour by hour just to get through the end of the day but one thing we're really really passionate about is to make sure that everyone has at least some time built into their working life of some kind of reflective practice now when we look at we'll look at doctors specifically and you know there's a lovely dreaded thing called the annual appraisal here in the UK and I know it's it's the same in other countries but you know doing things like manual handling and you know ticking a box saying I've I've read the latest CPD article is great but when we think about how useful that is in practice consistently I think I think there there can be certain questions asked of that but one thing we're quite passionate and again we're trying to sort of act as the role model in this in this regard is to say Take some time out from your working life, indeed during work time, because I think something like this shouldn't necessarily be a voluntary or an option or making people do this outside of work. And just take time to reflect on your practice and think, okay, how did we feel about X, Y, Z? And I know in particularly um, high stressful environments in the UK, and I'm going to use some UK terminology of 
um, the emergency department where you have a, a you know a resus come in and obviously things sometimes don't go to plan there's obviously hopefully time to sort of sit and reflect with the team and say well how did you feel about that but I, I know that doesn't happen as much as it should do but you know it, it's that kind of concept of I think just removing feelings of isolation removing feelings of loneliness because I think particularly when people go through burnout and again having been a burnout survivor myself you feel as though that you're the only person suffering this you're the only person experiencing this and I remember through my own experiences thinking looking at my peers and my colleagues thinking well look everything's fine with them well why can't I be like that but then I, I learned very very quickly that things like but people succumb to burnout in usually in very toxic work environments now we can go into the reasons of why workplaces are toxic but you know whether it's bullying or you know overwork or, or whatever but when I when I sort of correlate that to the medical profession, as you said earlier, doctors particularly hold themselves to extremely high you know standards of conduct and and understandably so. So things like perfectionism come into into play here. But I think what when I think back to what happened to my brother and and other people that I see go through this is, and I, I actually remember saying to this, uh, saying him, saying this to him that don't try and be perfect in an imperfect system. It will only ever cause disparity, and that level of disparity and distress will grow and grow and grow. Very sadly, I wasn't able to to sort of say that in time to him to 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 get it to a level where it where it shouldn't have gone. But that's something that again we really try and do through doctors in distress is remind doctors that a and indeed other healthcare workers that don't you know being good enough is actually good enough. And I know that goes very much at odds with what one is taught at medical school and one is taught by your, um, let's say, belligerent consultants on a ward round, teaching by humiliation and all of that. Um, I, I think as time goes on, and I, I, I do see some change in this actually going forward, is that it's fine just to be good enough. Um, you don't necessarily have to be superhuman all of the time. That's not sustainable. Um, and again, just remember that that there are only limited resources to treat the number of patients. And and again, I'm probably going to get too philosophical, but something I've learned as I sort of approach or am in midlife is is that things like work is unlimited. You know, it's it's infinite, but our time here is limited. And so we have to try and marry the two up as best as we can. And again, and I, I can't say this enough, and I, I am repeating myself, but I do have the utmost respect for the medical professions. But, you know, it, it's your work and your job shouldn't be your life. And I know... A lot of people selflessly don't, you know, give themselves to the job and the profession because it is a vocation, and it's a great ethos and a mindset to to have. Um, but just be careful about how you go about that. And again, that's one of the things that we try and encourage people at Doctors in Distress, uh, or the people that use our services at Doctors in Distress, to to really just sort of remember that that they are human and they can't work or live their life at a inhuman pace and particularly in the way that we structure our programs we we try and show people that engage with us that how you're feeling at the beginning of what we do and at the end of your experience there's a real difference so so for example one of our typical our typical programs last about eight to ten weeks and so what we do we have a kickoff webinar where we just bring everyone together and we try and find uh one or a, gr a group of select speakers that talks about the subject matter in hand with some either lived experience or expertise 
And so that, that starts off by bringing those people together. And then in the subsequent weeks that they meet, they break out into sort of little mini groups of up to 10, all facilitated by either a group analyst or a psychotherapist or some kind of professional in that regard that can A, keep, a, keep people safe, but B, obviously just make sure that the group dynamics work well. And at the start of that process, they fill out a standard questionnaire and to sort of measure their, their level of health. And at the end of it, we finish off with a, a webinar and then sort of an end questionnaire. And, you know, our data has always shown that there's been marked that in, marked improvement. And people just say, yeah, you know, I don't feel alone anymore. Um, I know there's other people going through this. And, you know, I've seen some great friendships and, and other relationships blossom from, from the people that we brought together. So I'm very, very proud of the way that Doctors in Distress runs those because it does have the impact that, that we want it to have. And from my own experience of uh attending balance groups in a sort of similar format in a way is that that shared processing um of a shared injury or a shared experience is is so much of the benefit in the sense of understanding that others are going through it because as you said with perfectionist cultures and cultures around never admitting that anything's wrong the 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 incentive in a way is to pretend to the whole world that everything's under control, right? Mm. And everything is everything is coding, everything is trying to just maintain the status quo that actually everything's fine, right? And being able to have a safe space to understand that actually everyone else is feeling the same thing, it just completely revolutionizes that feeling of feeling alone, like I'm the only person that could be um, is struggling with this. I'm the only person that finds this difficult. Um, so I think it's fantastic you've been able to provide that forum to people. Um, and I'm interested by the facilitators as well. Mm. I think it's a really tricky job potentially for someone. You know, how do you maintain the dynamic? How do you, you know, maintain the safety of people in the room? You know, when people are getting highly emotive, other people might be being triggered. Um, how do you keep, ensure that people are safe and that you know often in a therapeutic process it can be very unsettling at the beginning so things can almost get a bit worse before they get better mm. is that something how do you sort of safeguard for that and make sure that it ends up with a positive outcome um, and seeing through those sort of those uh, rocky times yeah no it's a good question so so as I said at the outset, something that we focus on primarily is prevention. So anyone who signs up for our groups, we make it clear that we're not a, a crisis or a treatment service. And indeed, we're not a formal therapy type service. So, But what we do looks like that. So all of our facilitators are trained, as I said, either group analysts or psychotherapists or psychoanalysts. And uh, we have a very good, strong working relationship with, uh, in the UK, NHS Practitioner Health. So if the signs of uh, immediate crisis or distress are spotted, those people are immediately referred to them where they pick up the immediate sort of um, treatment or, or handling of those folk. Um, as far as I'm aware, Touchwood, that hasn't yet happened because, again, the way that we structure our groups, the way that we publicize them and essentially the way we run it makes sure that doesn't happen. Um, but we, we have very much that strong governance and safeguards in place. And is there... When there's sort of collective resolution or collective idea around, you know, solutions, is there a way that that is sort of taken forward? Is there um, or is it, I guess, it's a more of an emotional experience about people getting gaining some resolution and feeling like they as an individual can sort of 
take forward um, the learnings that they've managed to kind of discover with the group? Yeah, I, I think it's probably more so the latter. So what you know, we can't solve everyone's problem or, or even attempt to do so. And but what we like to try and position ourselves as being is probably being the first step in that journey. And I think something that I really see a lot of feedback from the groups is people saying, I've now got a little bit of confidence and ability back to know that what I'm going through is manageable. But importantly, you've given me the confidence in some of the skills and tools and resources to try and help me deal with this or certainly find the right avenues of support going forward. Whereas before, I was completely lost and disengaged and even to the point of leaving the profession or doing something else. But I'm now able to just ha- you know, have my self-confidence and emotional health restored, not completely, but fully. So it's very much the start of that journey going forward. And, and you know, as a founder of a charity, it's immensely gratifying to see that, knowing that, that people you know, are, are, are impacted in that way, because I know ultimately that will prevent people going through those sort of tragedies that we spoke of earlier. So, so it's very much being part of that journey overall and just trying to empower people, you know, indeed with that sort of emotional or through emotional responses to say, yes, okay, I, I, I have the strength to deal with this. And, and indeed, I think actually when I look at doctors specifically, I think it makes them better doctors. I think there's a school of thought that shows having gone through life challenges and sharing your vulnerability and confronting and dealing with that, I think makes makes one a much, much better medical practitioner. Oh, 100%. I think you're absolutely right. Um, that ability to understand uh, sort of, in a way, the human condition um, better through the through your own experience, of course, uh, is so helpful when connecting with patients, I think. Which is why, in a way, I think that sort of balance groups have existed for a while in the realm of mental health around managing relationships with patients um, and managing that workforce. So um, there is enormous value, as you say, in terms of improving quality, I would say, um, in this kind of approach. Um, I wonder whether, Amandip, you could tell us a little bit about the webinars, maybe, that you uh, that, that the charity um, produce and perhaps any of the other activities that you that you do. Um, if we could speak in a bit more detail about those, that would be great. Yeah, sure. So, so the webinars they um, they really sort of um, pop up depending on the topic in hand or in question at the time. So, um, probably the most strongest example is is indeed sort of webinars that we've done around. Um, I'll actually pick one around the long COVID to start with because they've probably been one of the most successful. But you know, very early on in the pandemic, we we were obviously as a society and a nation trying to understand a lot more about what this is, etc. And so you know, in in actually having a webinar with with people who have gone through our groups and actually talked about their lived experiences acts as an educational platform, not just for those, but actually those around it to understand things like that better. Um, and, and that's really one of the most sort of um, impactful ways that I've seen the webinars work. Um, we've done other things on various topics. And again, it's, it's usually been to a very, very small cohort of, of people that have uh, engaged with it. And one of the most recent ones we did was actually called the Doctor One in Four, which is actually aimed at medical students. So th- this is a webinar series that was actually hosted by one of our trustees, uh, Professor Subod Dave, um, who's also the Dean at the Royal College of Psychiatry. So 
you know, I like to think he, he knows a couple of things about uh, about what he's talking about. But it, it was re- that that sort of series of webinars, and I think at at the uh, time of, of uh, recording this right now, I think they're still ongoing. Is it's really just introducing medical students into sort of having the right skills and mindset to prepare themselves to be doctors, and just just really acting as an educational tool. So. Nothing sort of formal is like a formalized like a textbooks or a syllabus, etc. Everything we do is very much emotional based, um, and that really sort of speaks to what we try and achieve with our webinars. Is just just you know addressing some of those feelings that we talked about earlier. We, we often sometimes write um, a few um, articles in the press, or we do. Uh, I certainly do sort of media appearances, etc. Um, which I'm not very good at. I've never done any media training, so I do get very very nervous at the time. Well, this podcast would show that you have nothing to worry about, Amon Depp, on well, that front. So. Thank you. That's, that, that wasn't a leading question, but thank you. Um, but, but, you know, one of the challenges that we have is um, we're a charity. So we get little or next to no funding from the NHS. Um, and essentially, we have to rely on public donations or very, very generous philanthropists and donors or funders and sometimes even corporate partners so it's it's actually very very difficult to do what we'd love to do so so much more we also have waiting lists believe it or not of people that want to create join uh, or even form specific uh, groups or creative writing workshops but also you know even funding webinars and public events etc in this day and age it takes resources and, and again as a private charity we're very very much constrained by the resources that we have um but that, that's kind of the reality of the charity world, which which I'm learning about as well. I don't have a formal background in charities, but um, I've used some of my experiences in the commercial world to try and translate to that. But, but that's we'd love to do more of the activities that you talked about, but uh, indeed it takes uh, time and money to do that. And um, I'd love to dig into that just a little bit more in a second. But just before we do, I was also really interested to talk about your campaigns as well. Mm-hmm. And... Um, we were drawn, obviously, to the one hour a month campaign, which I think was back in was it January of yeah. last year. Um, I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, so, so something that we, we really want to try and see and encourage is, and I think I covered this a little bit earlier around where this could fit in, but for me, doctors and healthcare workers need time in their professional practice to just sit and reflect about their work. So we're campaigning for an hour a month where, and starting off in doctors, if we can, where we're encouraging the powers uh, that can influence this. So this would be um, senior NHS folk, but also government to possibly help with funding, is just to give everyone time, uh, funded time within work to just spend an hour a week, very much in the format of what we produce or similar to that, where they can just sit and reflect about their general practice and the work that they do. Now, as I said earlier, you know, spending x number of hours per year doing you know essentially what we hear is worthless training on heavy lifting or other bits that that don't really pertain to practice uh, we think a much much better use of time is indeed to probably just spend that hour of reflective time and even during the appraisal process which and again i'm not a huge expert having never been through um the appraisal process for for doctors but from what i see and understand it it's very much sort of a Okay, so what have you achieved and what have you learned rather than how do you feel and exploring sort of the you know the emotional side of their work. So 
we're really trying to make sure that that's something that that could be thought about and embedded. And um, our wonderful chair, uh, Dame Claire Gerardo, has been sort of leading that effort in also her sort of other role as president of the Royal College of GPs, amongst many other hats that she wears, etc. So, so, so that's one campaign we're, we're sort of in the early days of, of really trying to push very, very hard on. And I think um, my experience of um, annual appraisal definitely rings true with your um, hypothesis there, which is it's very functionally based and all about CPD and um, knowledge and uh, sort of uh, CPD hours spent at sort of doing e-learning and things like that. And it, it I absolutely agree. It's, anything we can do to make that more comprehensive about your practice, your mental health, um, resilience i mean that's a double-edged uh, sword in itself but um yeah anything that we can do to improve that would be i'm sure time very very well spent um i also um another thing from your website that we were intrigued to talk about uh was some of the work that or the activities that happened off the back of um the television adaptation of um adam case this is going to hurt mm. um i wondered whether you could tell us a little bit about that yeah that was um that was something that was really quite emotive for me if i'm all honest in all honesty so so for those that have um read adam Kay's book he's a very so adam Kay's a very famous uh, comedian author writer um and a former doctor whose um uh, life stories really sort of revolve around the time that he spent as a doctor in uh, in the nhs and in his in the TV adaptation of his book, this is going to hurt. And so the, uh, there was a BBC series of the same name adapted from that, of which Adam wrote. Um, there was a particular storyline of a young doctor who um, essentially took her own life due to work pressures. And I know this really struck a chord with so many doctors that in that we engage with, but also that I, you know, see chatter on various online forums and and sort of within the sector that even to the point that some people just said i can't even watch that series it's too triggering but what what was really resonant about this was the it, it kind of just really surmised i guess the feeling and brought to life not just probably my brother's story but others as well and um it, it was very very and i'll actually never i don't want to well i'm going to spoil the spoil it for those that haven't seen it but before she took her own life, the character said, I tried my best. And, and, and that really got to me because I know that's what went through not just my brother's head, but others that have died by suicide. I mean, I mean, other statistics were brought up in this adaptation that a doctor takes their own life every three weeks. Um, and, and this, it's very hard to measure, but that's, that's a good rough estimation. But of the rates that we're seeing at the moment, it's probably one a week. So the problem is actually getting worse. So, so this adaptation um, by Adam Kay on the BBC was was really quite poignant and resonant of that. And so after this character took her own life in the next episode, there was a, a little tree that was unveiled. And, um, and actually that series was filmed at Ealing Hospital, um, <laughs> which, which by coincidence was where my brother started his medical career. So I recognized the scenery very, very well. And so I think after... A, after a while, after a few months after the series went out, various doctors and um, healthcare workers contacted Adam Kay and said, well, we've gone to Ealing and we've tried to actually find, as it's now be called, Shruti's tree, because the character was called Shruti. 
and so you know he he thought it a very very um good idea and actually i I totally support this in that there should be a real life memorial tree for all those doctors that have died by suicide because naturally people thought that there should be one and so i was very very kindly invited by adam to go back to ealing hospital uh, i think it was august last year so august 2022 to actually unveil with him um, a real life tree that was planted at ealing hospital in the grounds and that had a plaque that said, this is Shruti's tree, you know, to remember those that doctors that have died by suicide. And <clears throat> I don't know, I, I, it, it, um, it was really, really personal because um, when my brother died, so my brother worked at Darrant Valley in Kent, the staff there actually planted a tree in his honor as well um, in, in, in November, in uh, 2019, actually a year after he passed away. And that's why it really struck a chord with me. And I believe it's something that um, Adam K now wants to roll out. And so, um, you know, it'll be a watch this space moment. But th that's hopefully the first of many trees that are being planted to remember those doctors and NHS workers that have died by suicide. And, of course, the sad thing is, is that those those trees will end. By that order, those trees will be in, in hospitals all over the country, all over the world. I mean... Mm. When I was a house officer in my first year, uh, a doctor took their own their life in our halls of residence um, when we had just arrived, and it is it's unbelievably um, it's it's horrendous to think that this is happening all over the country, all over the world. Um, mm. So, all in all, well done, Amandip, for all of the work that you've done and for producing the, um, an amazing institutional organisation that really, really helps so many people. Um, let's talk about the future. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about what your aspiration is, what your vision is for Dr. Syndra Distress. Um, let's talk about the barriers. Let's think about how we might be able to help those, uh, what needs to be done. Um, and how can we potentially play a role? Yeah. So I guess sort of in a perverse way, the vision I have is that I wish the charity wouldn't exist, but I think it needs to exist until that sort of uh, goal is achieved of basically, and I know this won't ultimately be achievable, but making sure that doctors don't die by suicide where possible, particularly down to work pressures. Now, in terms of how we get there, um, we'd very much like to continue what we're doing in offering support groups and support programs for our doctors, but we need resources and funding to do that. Um, we want to offer that out to as many people as we can around the UK. Secondly, and I think in the medium and long term, is we want to try and work with the various stakeholders, particularly the health system and also governments, to make sure that there is adequate funding within the health system to make sure that staff health is given a priority. So things like, you know, giving that reflective time, you know, in fund in, in work time that's funded, so not something that they have to attend to outside of work, giving them access to proper mental health support, you know, making sure that the NHS is the best employer it can be. And there are some pockets of very, very good practice, but I think no one would disagree, even those, you know, sort of at the highest level of the NHS would agree that the NHS, even though it's not a single entity, it's lots of different entities, you know, could be a much, much better employer on a consistent basis. So 
we have lots of things and lots of bits and bobs that we have on our wish list that we want to do probably far far too long to go into here but the the main challenge that we have is funding we have the know-how we have the people and you know we have the ability to make the changes that we want to but we just simply don't have the funding that we need and so that's that's probably the biggest areas uh, or the biggest area that we face right now is we know what our mission is all the people certainly within doctors in, in distress are very very committed towards that and you know as people will see if they look at the website they're extremely high caliber and well-known people within the medical profession so but we just need the time and we just need the time support and resources from people to help us achieve that mission and Amandeep, do you see sort of partnerships or do you see um, the role of other agencies, organizations, companies? How do you kind of see that future being delivered? Yeah, I think I think that's a really good question. And, and I've often sort of mulled this over. And, and when we look at, I mean, so I work in the pharmaceutical services industry, for example. Now, I know there's very much a desire. And this is, again, this is just probably my personal view, but there is very much a desire within pharmaceutical companies and uh, manufacturers to work more closely with prescribers of their products. Um, but that has to be, and it should be done in a very ethical and appropriate way. But I think there's an opportunity here for companies or people like that or um, stakeholders that work with that vested interest that, I, well, I, let me put it a better way. I think it's in everyone's interest and vested interests to make sure that doctors and prescribers of products are kept healthy. And by working with organizations such as Doctors in Distress could be a good opportunity to make sure that happens. Um, I think we all have a part to play, not just the public, not just ourselves or uh, as a charity. There are roles for organizations that want to play a part and to be socially responsible and to, to keep people healthy that care for us, the Joe public, um, I think that's a great way to demonstrate commitment, you know, commitment and buy into something that's a very, very socially responsible cause. Well, Amandeep, um, I wholeheartedly endorse and agree with everything you've said. And I think uh, we will obviously be thinking as we move forward, you know, how can we tangibly take steps to to help in this area? And I'm, I really hope that um, there may be potential for us to be able to support you in that. So we will, I'm sure, keep the dialogue open. Um, conscious of time as well um, and the fact that we have um, already stolen enough of yours. So um, I think probably this is a good opportunity to bring the podcast to a close. Um, just say thank you very much for um, a very emotional, very challenging, um, but very important um, uh, episode which I think um, has just as I said before goes to show that this isn't just a sequence of numbers it's not um, uh, a series of you know uh, questionnaire scores this, we're talking about real lives here um, and um, all I can do is really applaud your work and and fully hope that you can kind of carry on and help even more people um, so thank you so much um, for joining us <laughs>